The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So in 2005, uh, there was a Canadian blogger named Kyle McDonald, and uh, he hit the headlines by bartering up uh, his single red paperclip to a two-story farmhouse over the course of 14 trades. So he started with a single red paperclip, and he said, I'll trade this paperclip for whatever item that you would give me of value. And so somebody gave him that. And in 14 trades, he traded from a red paperclip all the way up to a farmhouse. Now, others have followed in his footsteps. Most notably, this last year, there's a a gal from San Francisco named Demi Skipper. And she started with a bobby pin and traded her way all the way up to an $80,000 home. And she got that home this last December. Perhaps you saw that in the news. Now, while on the one hand, this is pretty impressive, somebody's got some serious negotiating skills. Uh, The frugal part of me, though, says somebody is getting had. (laughs) Right? The, The practical part of me says... Somewhere along the way, someone is getting a bad deal. Someone is willing to accept something of lesser value for something that is of greater value. They're they're making bad trades. And in our text today, we will see a very well-off family who has all the things that the world would desire, power and influence and prestige and all the rest. But they will trade what is precious, what is eternal, for their own agenda. They are trading the kingdom that they need for the kingdom that they want. They are trading what is eternal for what is temporary. And they are making a really, really bad trade. Would you read with me? Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it. Now, quick question. What did he hear of? Well, if you go up to the the previous verses, you find out that Jesus sent out the 12 disciples. And they were going out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the message that the king had arrived. And they were casting out demons and healing people in the name of the king, in the name of Jesus. Miracles are happening. So Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet 
he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she immediately came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This recorded history of the death of John the Baptist turns up really in the strangest way here in the Gospel of Mark. Now, as is typical in Mark's Gospel, the author takes a narrative story here, like the one that he is, he's done with John the Baptist, and he inserts it in the middle of uh, another storyline, something else. He inserts it into, another, into the middle of another story in order to contrast or highlight something that he wants the reader to understand. And in this case, the story of Jesus sending out the twelve is interrupted by this story here and then the coming miracle of the loaves before the return of the disciples to see what happened after they've gone out and proclaimed the gospel. And so... Mark is, is highlighting something here with the story of the death of, of John the Baptist. And, and, and it's the job of the reader then to ask, like, why? What? what? Why does he put that in the middle here? It seems kind of out of context, doesn't really flow with the rest of what is happening about Jesus. Why, why did he put this story in the middle of that? Now, one of the things that we can... Uh, point to is the contrast between the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that Jesus is offering and the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that is offered through the world. So that's one way to perhaps look at this passage, this, this inserted story about the beheading of, of John the Baptist. That, that maybe what's happening is he's, he's comparing the kind of king that Jesus is with the kind of kings that are already present in Israel at that time. You know, another possibility is to look at the historical context in which the gospel is written to try and understand why this story might matter to the original audience. So Mark's gospel was, was probably the earliest gospel account, the oldest gospel account, written the earliest and closest time to the actual events in which, uh, which are recorded in the gospel. And uh, most commentators seem to believe that Mark's gospel was, was really facilitated by uh, the help of Peter, that, that Mark was uh, writing for Peter, 
And that the gospel target or the audience that was intended were the Christians that were in Rome at the time. Now, the Christians in Rome at this time, by the time the gospel arrives to them, had already experienced uh, the, the power dynamic of Rome. Uh, Rome had expelled all of the Jews that were in Rome under Claudius in 41 to 54 uh, A.D., and, and so they had already seen this sort of move against uh, Judaism and against those that were of, of a Jewish background and those who had held to Judaism as their religion. And, and then coming on the heels of that by the 60s, in, in anticipation of, of what, is, what is coming in Rome, uh, Caesar Nero, who took the place of Claudius, uh, will blame the burning of Rome upon the Christians in the, in the 60s uh, A.D. And, and so here comes this story about uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. And what could that possibly mean to these Roman Christians who are living at the epicenter of persecution and pressure against their religious perspective? What could be the possible understanding that is gained? Well, I think one of the things is, is that even when John the Baptist is beheaded, the movement is not stopped. When the leaders are cast down, the kingdom continues on. That God is continuing to work. After receiving this gospel and, 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 and hearing this message, they can see that John's ministry is being diminished. It's being... Uh, you know, taken away, but that doesn't stop the ministry of the kingdom. There's continuity that is still happening, still continuing on through this passage. And so Mark tells us through this narrative that God is still at work. He's bringing healing. He's bringing deliverance and spreading the good news of the kingdom, even if the leader dies at the hands of unjust power. The kingdom is still worth living for. The the kingdom is expanding, even in persecution. You can behead the leader, but you can't behead the kingdom. So we have this very important passage that's that's communicating some things to the audience as they take this in, the original audience here in the Gospel of Mark. Now, our passage today divides neatly into four passages. categories or four subjects that will be discussed as we work our way through the text. And I want want you to keep that paradigm in the back of your mind of this idea of a kingdom that is victorious even when when death takes place. The the four uh, divisions of our our passage today will be verses 14 to 15, Jesus' reputation, verses 16 to 20, Herod's conscience, Herod's conscience. Verses 21 to 25, Herodias' scheme. And verses 26 to 29, John's death. And so those are each of the subjects that are are dealt with in this passage. And we'll see the natural flow of that as we continue on here. So beginning in verses 14 to 15, King Herod hears of uh, of the preaching of the disciples. He hear, hears the disciples going throughout Israel, telling people to repent and doing signs and wonders, helping them to anticipate 
the arrival of God's promised king. Now, like any good politician, uh, he's listening to the, re- the reports to try and read the crowd. What are people saying about all this? What does it mean for my kingdom? How's my popularity doing? What do the polls say, right? And there's this theme in the Gospel of Mark of, of people asking, well, who is Jesus? Mark, in, a, in his attempt to answer that, he starts out at the very beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, saying, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So he tells us immediately who Jesus is. And then in subsequent passages, he goes on to further reinforce that by, by demonstrating how lots of people understood this about Jesus. Each subsequent story in Mark's gospel goes on to reinforce this monstrous, monstrous claim about the identity of Jesus. Perhaps you'll remember how John the Baptist identifies him at the baptism and says, yeah, I'm not even worthy to unlatch a sandal. And then God the Father at the baptism identifies Jesus by saying, you are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit identifies him by descending upon him in the form of a dove at the baptism. Then Satan identifies him as he's defeated in in the desert as they face off in the temptation. Demons identify him by crying out every time they encounter Jesus. Son of David, have you come to cast us into the pit before the time? They recognize his authority. They see him for who he is. They understand the dynamics of what kind of authority this king wields. Even nature itself identifies him. Sickness flees. Impairments impairments are healed. Seas are calmed. Even nature itself bends under the authority of King Jesus. And the disciples have all now been sent out. They're, They're proclaiming this message of the authority, the arrival of the king. And everywhere they go, the same authority that Jesus has is present and working in them. So that as they preach, as they proclaim, as they talk about the king and the kingdom, miracles are happening. Amazing, amazing things are taking place. And Herod is hearing the stories from his kingdom. Now, he's wondering what it all means. Remember, this is before the time of CNN, so he doesn't, he doesn't get to watch news reports. He's dependent upon these, these uh, reports that come to him via people or messengers from his kingdom. And there's these theories about the nature of Jesus and who he really is. Everybody's grappling with with trying to understand who he is. And so in verse 14, we see that, that some people propose that he is John the Baptist, that he's been raised from the dead, and because of his resurrection, that's why all these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this theory is then explained... Uh, how it is that John died, because this was new information to the gospel as we're, we're tracking through the gospel of Mark. We didn't know that John died, and, and this now gives us the explanation for how and why he died. 
And we're going to also understand why it is that Herod thinks that possibly that's him. But then there's this other theory. Some others say in verse 15, others said he's Elijah. And others, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So theory two then is that that Jesus is, is not John the Baptist, but maybe he's Elijah returned in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Now this is a natural assumption. Because perhaps you'll remember at the end of the Old Testament in in the book of Malachi, there was this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, the, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites, they believed that Elijah would come and that he would arrive before the Messiah. Now this is something that, that many Jewish people anticipated before the arrival of Messiah. Very common belief. Uh, you see the disciples bring that up again in the Gospels in Mark chapter 9. Uh, it comes up again when they, they're questioning Jesus and they, they ask him, hey, uh, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're, they're trying to figure it out too, right? Like, okay, we know Elijah's supposed to be here and, and, and you're here and if you're the Messiah, where's Elijah? How does that work? And Jesus answers and he tells them, you know, that uh, John the Baptist is the Elijah figurehead that was prophesied. It also comes up when, when Jesus is discussing things with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And this, this exact same pattern comes up again here, which is, you know, some say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets, right? So same motif. Everybody's trying to process and figure this out. Like, how does this actually work? So it would have been natural for people to think maybe Jesus is Elijah, because Elijah was a prophet of power. He did lots of miracles. And, and, and Jesus is doing lots of miracles. And then the disciples that he sends out are doing lots of miracles. So, so maybe Jesus is the Elijah that's to come before the Messiah. Or, theory number three, Jesus is a prophet like one of the Old Testament prophets. Others thought Jesus might be another prophet, like one of the, the, the prophets that had appeared in Israel's history. These prophets spoke the truth with boldness in the face of great adversity and all kinds of opposition. And Jesus was known for being uncompromising in his proclamation of the truth. He didn't care what the audience was. He was going to say what was true no matter what. If it offended you, it offended you, but here is the truth, right? So it would be easy for them to say, oh, okay, but the way that Jesus teaches and the way that he, he's irritating people by, by speaking the truth, but maybe he's that one, just another one of the prophets, like the prophets in the Old Testament. Maybe that's who he is. Now, none of this should be surprising to us today that here in the Bible, people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Hasn't that been the journey of people all the way throughout history? Even to the present day, there are, there are tons of debates about who Jesus is, about the nature of, of Jesus' ministry and the meaning of his life. People are still arguing over the identity of Jesus. Some people just simply want to make him some sort of you know, moral teacher. 
They say, you know, he's like the Buddha or, or whatever. You know, he just, he gives us these really cool principles to live by and he's helpful to society in that way. Uh, others see him as maybe an obstacle to progress. Now, the reason there's, there's so much debate over Jesus is that depending upon who you say that he is, there are immediate consequences to that understanding. So if, for example, you say that, that he's just an ancient teacher, you're, you're, you're sort of let off the hook. You're given this sense of release of like, okay, well, I can take his teachings or what I like from his teachings and just incorporate that into my life, and I can sort of discard the rest. It's not necessary for me to, to take it beyond a sort of a sampling of all the great teachers of old. However, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything in life has to change to live in accordance with that reality. Have you thought about some of the claims of Jesus? Is there there wrestling with the identity of Jesus? Maybe he's John the Baptist that resurrected, and maybe maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's one of the prophets. They're, They're wrestling through that. The thing that they're trying to avoid in the wrestling is saying Jesus is the Messiah, right? They they prefer any one of the other options to this reality because it has immediate consequences and and, and has immediate consequences for us. Let's consider some of the things that Jesus said. Remember John 14, 6? On the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That, that's a bold claim, isn't it? What if I was to say to you, hey guys, uh, I'm here to tell you this morning, the only way to get to God is through me. How would you feel about that? Well, I hope you'd throw me out, first of all. But second of all, what an audacious claim. Those words left the mouth of Jesus. That's what he said. He said, I'm I'm the vine, you're the branches, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's an audacious claim. He said, I as the son of man will judge the whole earth. Multiple multiple places, John chapter 5 verses 26 to 27 in particular. In in the same chapter, in chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus, uh, it's said of Jesus that to reject him is to reject the Father. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's a bold claim, isn't it? In John 8, 24, Jesus says that he is the one who has authority to provide forgiveness for sin. Now, to a Jewish audience, that was scandalous, right? To, 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 to the audience that hears those words, it's crazy for somebody to say that. No, listen, the way sin is dealt with is you go to the temple, you kill an animal, blood is shed, there's this whole process that you've got to go through. That's how sin is forgiven. And Jesus says, nope, I do it. Heavy. You see, here's the reality. 
If you accept Jesus as God's promised king, you get all the benefits, but you also get all the requirements. All, it comes with both. It comes with the, the benefits. You get the forgiveness of sins. You get the Holy Spirit. You get all of those things. But also along with that, you get living under the rule of King Jesus. He has ultimate say-so, ultimate authority in our lives. And to recognize that in the way that these people in the first century we're, we're wrestling with that. If I say that he's Messiah, then that means there's all these consequences that happen in my life as a result. And that's what John's been preaching, right? Make, make straight the path of the Lord. Get your, 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 your life aligned with the reality that the king has come, the Messiah is here. And so there's these, these three theories that people are wrestling with. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he is, uh, you know, one of the prophets. But when Herod hears this, verse 16, he's, he said, it's John whom I beheaded that has been raised. Notice here in, in Herod's conscience the reason he lands on John the Baptist is because he's got a guilty conscience. Out of each of the possible theories that Herod picks, Herod picks number one, that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead because of his guilty conscience. Now the rest of our passage here details for us how it is that John was killed, that he was killed by the by the scheming of Herodias and the cowardice of, of Herod. And when Herod is presented with the various options about who Jesus is, he immediately jumps to the conclusion that Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead, and that his, his presence here is somehow a judgment against him for what he did, how he did John wrong in executing him. It's a judgment against his actions. Now, this is the way that the conscience works. God has constructed man in such a way that we are, we are given an internal governor that, pro, that proclaims judgment on our actions, whether they are good or bad. Now, conscience alone is not a great governor. It's not a good barometer for life because the Bible tells us that a conscience can be seared. You, perhaps you'll remember in First Timothy chapter four, verse two, where it talks about having a seared conscience—a conscience that's seared with a hot iron. It's no longer able to feel things because of the abuse that has happened with it. It becomes calloused, right? So it's not a great barometer, but it's a, it, it's a decent one. And, and when we cross a moral boundary, our conscience lets us know by causing us to judge our actions as wrong. And this judgment can be, can be momentary, it could be fleeting, or it can be something that is more sustained and it becomes actually a belief about who you are. In the first case, this judgment that is momentary or fleeting uh, tells us that something we've just done is bad. Like, maybe I shouldn't have said what I said, or maybe I shouldn't have went back to the holiday dessert bar and had that extra piece of pie, even though I was already stuffed. It tells us, you know, you're being bad right now, right? The second, more prolonged activity that develops uh, a, a constant 
uh, judgment about who we are is often called shame. That's where the conscience is continually reminding us that we suck at life, that we're not good at it, we should stop, we should give up, you're a terrible person, all right? And people find all kinds of ways to soothe themselves in the face of that. But having said that, so that, that's, the conscience is supposed to work this way. Herod knows that he did wrong in killing John. So when, when this circumstance comes this way and he hears these reports of miracles, he thinks immediately, oh no, it's coming back on me, right? And this is the way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of people. Often it is how the Holy Spirit leads us. He, he causes us to know when we're in God's will or when we're fighting against God's will by activating our conscience specifically uh, or, 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 or maybe more generally about our, our nature of sin and rebellion, reminding us that we're sinners by nature. But in both cases, the conviction from the Holy Spirit is not meant to just leave us condemned. It's meant to push us towards a solution so that our conscience can be repaired, so that the guilt can be lifted and our shame can be lifted, so that we can find forgiveness and grace. It's meant to push us or draw us personally to Jesus as the solution. But this is a point that Herod and Herodias never reach. In verse 18, when, when, when uh, we, we're going through the passage here, it's Herod, he, he sends and has John bound and put in prison for the sake of Herodias. And then in verse 18, for John was saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So why does John have, or why does Herod have John arrested? Again, it was a matter of conscience. He was being told, you're wrong in doing this. His conscience being pricked by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching and the proclamation of John, and, and by being told, that's sin, and you know better, and you shouldn't be doing this. Now, Herodias, in her response, is like, I, I, I just I wish this guy was dead so I wouldn't have to feel this anymore, <laughs> right? And John is trying to pacify, or excuse me, Herod is trying to pacify his wife, and so he has John arrested. Now, from verse 18 on, we start to get into the backstory of how John died. Herod was, a, was divorced from his previous wife, who was the daughter of a Nabataean king. And Herodias was divorced from her former husband, which was Herod's half-brother. Okay? Now, Herodias' first husband, Philip, uh, he was also of the Herod family, but had fallen out of favor with the Herodian family. Um, and, and he was kind of a deadbeat he didn't own any land. He wasn't ambitious when it came to power. He had a reputation for being lazy and, and, and not trying to fight for political power. And so shortly after their marriage, she, Herodias, bore a daughter named Salome to Philip. And in 27 AD, she and Herod Antipas, Philip's half-brother, uh, got married. They, they divorced their, their former spouses. They got married. They got together. And it was scandalous to Israel. They struck up this relationship. And when Herod came along, who, who, Herod Antipas came along, who owned land, 
He was politically ambitious. He was a mover and a shaker and was, was involved with Rome and, and, and knew some somebodies. Herodias saw her opportunity and, and, and pursued this relationship, abandoned her, her marriage to Philip and pursued this relationship with Herod Antipas. So they get married in 27 AD. And uh, since they were both married and their divorce was followed by this, this subsequent remarriage to one another, uh, the people in, in Galilee, the, the place where Herod ruled, became angry at the moral and political decay of the rulers of their region. And the marriage aroused the anger of the people because Jewish law stated that it was unlawful for a man to marry his brother's wife. That's a, a, a law from Leviticus 18, verse 16. So now, John the Baptist has been telling Herod uh, that he had broken God's law by m- marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. And Herodias does not take kindly to John's public rebuke. Check out verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not because, verse 20, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herodias is holding a grudge. She's she's bitter. She's angry. She doesn't like the fact that her manipulation, her ladder climbing in society is being exposed. Right? She doesn't like the fact that her sin is being proclaimed. She doesn't like the public rebuke that is taking place. She just wants John dead. She's experiencing conviction as well, but reacting by hardening herself against it. She trans- that, transforms that sense of guilt into hatred. And by hating the one who is highlighting her sin, she feels like she can escape the conviction. She doesn't, she doesn't like the way that John makes her feel. She believes that if, if she can get rid of John, the bad feeling about who she is and what she's doing will go away. She's convinced John is the problem, not her actions. <laughs> you know anybody like that? The only thing standing in her way to uh, to the only thing standing in the way of her desire to kill, her, to kill John is her husband. Now Herod, of course, is less reactive. He's also more controlled by the opinions of others. He's trying to play the, 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 what's popular among his people, right? And so he arrests John, but he doesn't want to have him killed. He's, he's just sort of holding him. He's trying to pacify his wife and pacify the people. He knows that the people really like John. He knows his wife really hates John. And, and so he's trying to you know, find this middle road to navigate to make everybody semi-happy or at least not angry. Right? Notice what the text says that he believes about John says, first of all, he feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe by imprisoning him, presumably from Herodias, his wife. And then it says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
Hey, just, I'm going to pause here for just a quick side note. This is a sidebar. There's something about the way that John communicates and inter- interacts with Herod that I think is interesting. It's interesting to note both the access that John has to this, this place of political power in the government of his time and the way in which he uses that access. Apparently, even though John was a brash person, uh, in, in his personality, from what we can read in the Gospels, he was very abrupt and very prophet-like in his demeanor, just proclaiming, you know, he's the same guy that stood on the shores of the, uh, of the, uh, the Jordan River and, and cried out to the people who were coming down, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? That same guy? So he's got, like, he's got a hardcore personality, and yet at the same time, he still has, there's something about him that's endearing to Herod. He's uncompromising with the truth, and yet at the same time, he's still able to gain an audience with the most powerful political component of the area in which he lived in that time. Now, I say that to say what I think is just a really simple thing. As we consider the ways in which our kingdoms collide sometimes. The role of the church and the affairs of the world. It's good for us to consider John's example. He's not removed from the world of politics. He goes right up to this king, tells him exactly what his sin is. He does not compromise God's word. He tells him exactly what his sin is. And yet at the same time, he has a way of speaking that the king wants to keep hearing him. Right? It's both. He's uncompromising in truth, and yet there's something about his demeanor that invites more conversation. Oftentimes, I see people in the household of faith that believe the way that we complete our mission is by taking over the government. If we just can get the right people in power, if we can just legislate the right thing, if we can just pass the right laws, then then we can sort of legislate righteousness and holiness to the land. Does that work? Anybody think that actually works? Historically, has that ever gone well? Not really, right? So we have to be careful not to misalign our kingdoms here. John does this, this, this amazing thing of, of saying what sin is, proclaiming the truth, and yet not confusing the reality that that kingdom is not God's kingdom. It's not. It's a different kingdom. Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said this. He said, The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. John's not trying to convert his nation through taking over the government, but he is standing for righteousness uncompromisingly. It's a wonderful example. Well, John boldly speaks out on matters of righteousness in this secular setting, and Herod is experiencing conviction. He's intrigued by John's character, and he's curious about the things that John has to say. However, he's unmoved in his sin. He still is not repenting. Now, both Herodias and Herod are looking for an escape 
from the conviction that they feel. They're both trying to get out from under the guilt that they feel over their sin. John's presence, his message brings conviction into their lives. Now Herodias, she finds escape through anger, through rejection, through hatred. Herod finds his his escape through inaction, through passivity. But both never repent and turn from their sin. This week during our sermon prep meeting, Kathy Johnston reminded me of this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the subject of repentance. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me because it's, it's powerful. He says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's, it's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, and for the sake of it, man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods for. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It is the gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. He says, ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But he delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Herod is experiencing conviction. Herodias is experiencing conviction. They interpret that as only guilt and shame. But they don't know what they need is grace and forgiveness. What they need is repentance and cleansing. What they need is a renewed conscience because of the grace of God. Friends, when your conscience is being aggravated by the Holy Spirit, it is time to pay attention. It is time to take action. It is time to change direction. That aggravation is the work of costly grace from God. And it is not meant to drive you from God. It is meant to drive you to God where your conviction 
your condemnation, your guilt, and your shame can be lifted. Well, Herod is working to try and defend John. But an opportunity arises, verse 21. It came when, on Herod's birthday, he gives a banquet for his nobles and the military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. Now, Herodias has just been waiting for an opportunity to rid her conscience of this prophet. She's just looking for a way around it. She's been working literally for years to climb the social and political ladder. She can't have some guy now mucking it up and creating scandal that threatens the power that she's gaining in her marriage with Herod Antipas. When Herod's birthday party comes along, she sees her opportunity and seizes it. This party will create just the right circumstance to put pressure on Herod right where she knows he will feel it. Social pressure. Now this is a move against her husband's wishes. But she's not in this marriage to serve and to love. She's in this marriage to gain. That's what she's there for. So she does what she's been doing all along. She plays emotional chess to try and move Herod towards this sort of checkmate that will get her what it is that she wants. For her, it is victory at all costs, even if it is her daughter who has to pay the ultimate price. Herod's da- or Herodias' daughter comes in and dances in, verses, uh, in verse 22. Her- Herodias wanted her own kingdom so bad that she was willing to sexualize her daughter for the sake of getting what she wants. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Herod's stepdaughter was named Salome. She's not named in the text here, but that was her name according to Josephus. She's the half-brother of, or she's the daughter of Herod's half-brother, Philip. She's likely at this time in her life about 12 to 14 years of age. She's brought out in front of the military commanders on Herod's birthday to dance what was likely a provocative dance in front of all of the guests of the party and Herod himself. Herod responds that he is pleased with her and offers her half the kingdom, up to half the kingdom. It's a gross gross story. When you consider what it is that this mother is allowing to take place, she likely took her to the dance practices. She's been planning and plotting for a while to to put her daughter in front of her husband in that way and in front of the guests at this party in that way. It's victory for Herodias at all costs. It doesn't matter who it hurts. She probably had a hand in setting up the show. Herodias probably had a hand in setting up the show for Herod's birthday. And Salome is just a pawn being used by her mother. In the end, she will also share the guilt for the death of John the Baptist. Can you see how fixated Herodias is upon grabbing a kingdom of her own? 
Can you see Salome's youthful innocence after she's given this promise by Herod? She runs directly to her mother in verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? She's thinking, you know, what kind of prize? Land, money, power? What, you know, what, what do I get? Her mom says, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She runs back. She tells Herod. Think about the awkwardness of this moment. Everybody knows Herod's made this big promise. Salome comes running back in. I I know what I want. I know what I want. The guests get quiet. What's she going to ask for up to half the kingdom? This is intriguing. What's going to take place? Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Stunned silence. The crowd looks around. They're looking at Herod. What's he going to do? He feels the pressure. His generals are there. He already made the promise. Here's his oath. What is he going to do? You you can see him debating in verse 26. And the king was exceeding sorry because of the oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. He's feeling the social pressure. And so he, he, he sends out an executioner. An executioner cuts off the head of John the Baptist, puts it on a platter. While the party is happening, here comes a human head on a platter back out to the crowd. Immediately, it's handed to a 12 to 14-year-old girl who just got done dancing a very provocative dance for the entire crowd. She very proudly takes the head of this human and marches it over to her mother and gives it to her. Can you see how dark this story really is? The reality of this is shocking. But for Herodias, it's her kingdom at all cost. It's her kingdom at all costs. It's a sad tale of trading what is precious and eternal for what is temporary and fleeting. History tells us that Herodias and Herod actually continued their manipulative relationship with one another, and it finally got them into trouble with uh, the, the emperor, and they were banished to Gaul, and they died in obscurity. They continued to try and manipulate power until it got them in trouble and they got banished as a result. Herod went on placating her. She went on manipulating for power. And what they fought for their whole lives cost them everything. You know, one of the most poignant verses from this passage is the last verse, verse 29. When John's disciples heard what happened, they came and recovered the headless body of John the Baptist and laid it in a tomb. And from the outward perspective, it looks like the end of a movement, the end of a ministry. It looks like John has traded what is precious, his life, for what is meaningless, a simple stand for righteousness. But John was bought into an eternal kingdom. John is not sad at this moment about the trade that he made, is he? As he stands in the face of Jesus himself in his eternal kingdom. John's not sad about the trade he made. To him, it's like giving up a paper clip or a bobby pin for a house. It's a good trade. It's a good trade. It's a trade he would be willing to make all day long. See, here's the example of people living for two different kingdoms. Here's Herod and Herodias on the one side and John on the other And and that's the way it is. You can only have one kingdom. You can have the kingdom of Jesus or you can have your kingdom. There's no in-between middle ground. It's Jesus' kingdom or your kingdom. That's it. 
Now, when I say that in such a stark way, immediately I think we all feel this like, okay, but am I all in or am I not all in? (laughs) Right? Like, have I given myself wholly over to the kingdom or am I still fighting for my own kingdom? Listen, that's that's a reality we're all going to wrestle with as sinners. John wrestled, remember, in his life. He, he sends a message back to, to, to Jesus and his disciples, and he says, hey, uh, so are you the Messiah? Are you not the Messiah? I mean, wh- you know, what's the deal? But in the end, he settled on the fact that living for the kingdom was worth it. After wrestling with doubts, faith the way that we all do, where he landed was that the kingdom of God was worth living for, it was worth dying for. You can only have one kingdom, yours or Jesus. The kingdom is not moral perfection. You can have doubts and sins and folly all all the same way that John also doubted and Peter sinned and there were moments of weakness in the disciples. But the kingdom of God is the relentless pursuit of the grace of God as a disciple and follower of Jesus. It's continual repentance in the face of struggle. That's what evidence we look for for being in the kingdom. It's putting all your eggs and all your hopes in one basket, the basket of the kingdom of God. Folks, make a good trade. Make a trade that's eternal. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder as we close out our time here in worship. Would you shape us through your word as we respond to the call to live for one kingdom and a kingdom that's not our own, but a kingdom that's yours. As we consider what that means and how that impacts our lives, as we consider your authority and your rule and where it extends to, Lord, would you shape us by your truth, change us for your glory, and make us a people who bear your image and grow in the likeness of you. In Jesus' name, amen.